Coming to you from Beverly Grove, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm sitting here in the garage of a guest, or I guess I'm his guest in a way. I'm in his garage, whom I've wanted to have on for a long time. He does a podcast, which is like this, a podcast with writers, but he does a podcast also of the kind that another of our guests on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast does. Uh, in a way, he's like the literary version of Mark Maron. We've had Mark Maron on. Mark Maron is the Mark Maron of comedy. Brad Listy, my guest today, is, I would say, the Mark Maron of literature. He does the podcast Other People right here right here out of this garage with countless writers. He has in-depth personal conversations, the kind that go psychologically deep in a way that I think I often fail to. So I'm going to get some tips from him today on that. He's also the author of the novel, and I'm going to say this with the proper punctuation, Attention Deficit disorder. He is the founder of The Nervous Breakdown, the literary and culture site I'm sure you've seen, and he's many other things besides, including a father for the second time just recently. Brad, tell me, how do you feel about that analogy, that you're the Mark Marin of literature? Is that accurate, or do you push back against it? Oh, no. I mean, I mean, it's flattering. I should say, though, that the reason we're in my garage, which feels like very Marin derivative, hmm. is, uh, first of all, I think the first... 300 episodes of this show were recorded in my apartment proper. We then moved. Uh, my wife was pregnant with our second. That meant I got exiled to the garage. So uh, I, I want to make sure that's clear. And then I, I would also say that uh, a garage is like a natural place for this type of activity. It seems that way. I mean, how much were you actively learning from the Mark Maron model and how much of this is just coincidental similarity? Oh, I learned a lot. I mean, I talked about this in a recent monologue. I think what I learned from Mark uh, most especially is the way in which a podcast can um, help to build community in a creative, uh, in a creative uh, what's a discipline. You know, like his, his show really became sort of like a meeting place for people in the comedy world, I think it's sort of branched out from there now to include uh, the wider, you know, entertainment um, industries or whatever you want to call them. And I think seeing that made me uh, feel inspired to do something similar for people in the literary realm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a big thing. I also think just his honesty. He's really good. You know, I love his show and he uh, like the confessional nature of it, the way in which uh, he shares uh, his own experiences and is able to draw out other people. Um, you know, on his show, obviously, has been, uh, you know, hugely instructive and helpful and inspiring. And, you know, there are others, uh, which I, you know, I just did a big monologue, basically singing the praises of all my heroes. And, uh, you know, Howard Stern, Terry Gross, Ira Glass, I mean, kind of the usual suspects. All honest people in their broadcast persona, though, you would say. Yeah, I mean, I think mm -hmm. the honesty is there. I mean, they're different. Um, you know, I feel like Howard... Uh, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a comic, uh, performer in a way that obviously Terry and Ira are not, though they do have, uh, you know, good sense of humor. Uh, Mark is obviously more explicitly, um, uh, comical in his approach. Um, but I feel like, you know, Howard and Mark inject their personal story into their shows in ways that Terry and Ira do not. Mm. Uh, you know, the NPR thing, you sort of are, it's sort of it's it's more traditional, you know, where the host does not uh, become a part of the show and their lives don't get tangled up in it. It's all about the guest, and uh, I guess I'm I'm more of the former and less of the latter. Now, as I say on other people, you interview writers just like I do here on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, and I wonder 
this is an aspect of your show that's different from what I do, is that you are also a writer of fiction. I'm not. You're a writer of fiction talking most often to other writers of fiction. To what extent do you feel like you're engaging in not necessarily shop talk, but do you feel like you're, you're beginning from a premise of shop talk? Like a lot of times on your show, it's fascinating to hear you asking about what someone's writing routine is or how they fit writing in or what their elements of their process, you know, how, how shop talky would you consider the way you approach a lot of these interviews? Uh, to me, it almost feels more like a student. I feel more like a student doing the show. I learn a lot from my guests and I, I have kind of an inquisitive Anything that I'm inquisitive about in that regard feels like a student wanting to learn. Mm. Um, but I also have experience trying to do this and have written and published a book and I struggle uh, daily sitting in front of the keyboard trying to write the next book. And so I get it at that level. And mm -hmm. I think anybody who spent time trying to write a book <laughs> and has seen it through understands uh, what a challenge it can be. And so, um, you know, I think I'm coming at it. Uh, from an informed perspective, and I'm always curious to know how other people do it. And I've learned a lot all, over almost 400 episodes. And the show, by the way, is called Other People, Not Other Writers. It's Was was it always a focus for you to have writers on, or was it... I mean, I've read a bit about the origin of the title, that it was kind of a parody of uh, People magazine. Here's Other People. I mean, is it... Were, was writers, were writers the focus from the moment you conceived of this show, though? Yeah. I mean, that was always my community. And uh, again, I think I was inspired. I mean, the podcasting thing, I was a little bit, I wasn't that early. You know, I was relatively early. I think things have really exploded over the past year or two. And this show is four years old. But even when I started there, you know, there were already a lot of podcasts out there. And, um, you know, Marks, as you mentioned, was among them. And I think um, the sense of it was just like, you know, writers need a show that does uh, something that is a little bit more unorthodox mm -hmm. and I thought I would give it a shot and I love radio love you know I was consuming a lot of this stuff as a listener and uh, just tried it I'm a sucker for an experiment and <laughs> here we are four years later there's something conceptually really fascinating about your show as well it's almost there's almost a stunt aspect I find that you're interviewing as we say all writers but very often you go down a path that doesn't even lead to their book like they sure they've got books out, but you want to find you want to find out sometimes it seems to me about everything but their book in a certain that's the way. Show. Right? Yeah? That's the show. Yeah. It's writers, but not the books. Right. <laughs> but I mean the gamb I mean sometimes the books. I mean the books yeah. come up and the they, books they're not barred, but they don't come up naturally uh, very often. No, and some of it is a function of uh, reality. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, being the father of two young children. I was I was doing two shows a week until uh, this past year with the the second baby on the way. Now mm. I'm doing one. I'll probably go back to two. It depends on, you know, uh, time schedule and what my life will allow. But when it comes to uh, the format of the show, a lot of it is dictated by just my personal taste. Some of it is dictated by necessity. Um, you know, so I have a writer coming in. I'll get the book uh, 24 hours before they show up. It'll oh, come geez. in the mail. <laughs> the publisher just doesn't get it to you on time. Sometimes so they, they do. Sometimes they do. Mm. Sometimes they don't. But, mm. um, my gambit has always been that if you talk to writers and you find out who they are as people, um, you know, how they do the work, where they come from, why they do the work. Uh, I always say it's like mostly biography and craft rather mm. than like uh, a rehashing of plot or some sort of literary theory discussion, which has its place. I don't think I'm the best person to do that kind of show. Right. I think there are other people who do it just fine as is. And so I'm actually interested in uh, in them as people <laughs> yeah. as a, and, and who they are as artists and how they got there. Um, 
And I feel like if a listener hears that and connects with that person and what they're saying about their life, they're just as likely, if not more likely to buy the book than if we sat down and, and picked apart the plot. And I also, right. feel, I also feel like if you take a, if you take a, a conversation and you limit it to the book uh, or you make that the central focus, you're excluding a huge number of listeners, most of whom haven't had a chance to read. It's hard to listen to a conversation about a book that you haven't read. And there's the whole spoiler thing, whether you care about spoilers or not. I don't, but then it always is in the back of my mind. Someone might complain or the author them. The author themselves might not want to reveal a spoiler. It's 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 a real it's a real hornet's nest to actually talk about the book, isn't it? Yeah, I I don't like it. I mean, like as a listener, it's not my favorite thing to hear is two people talking about a book unless it's a book that I've read and I feel confused by. Right. I'm kind of the same way with book reviews. I don't love book reviews mm -hmm. unless I've read the book and I don't know what to think about it and I want to like go back and read somebody's thoughts to try to clarify my own. I don't like to read a book review and then use that as a launching pad to go get a book. I tend 95% of the time to find book reviews really unsatisfying and formulaic. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's true. I mean, I think that's uh, many, many a book reviewer would agree that they've turned in their fair share of formulaic reviews. Well, I mean, I don't want to sound dickish because I think, <laughs> I mean, look, look, there's a place for criticism. There are right. great critics. Like I always, um, you know, when I read a great review, uh, I'll, I'll almost always tend to share it or, uh, you know, I don't know, pick up the book. You know, there are certain reviewers who I will always read. Lydia Kiesling right. uh, is one of them. Uh, like, I feel like the best reviewers, their their reviews go beyond a review uh, and deviate and be, feel more like an essay to me. Um, you want to read her mind interacting with a book and see, you want to see the product of that. Not it's, about it's almost her not about the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's the book sparks her mind in action, and that's what you want to see. It's right? really good. As opposed to, here's what I'm saying. Here's, mm -hmm. I think, the crux of it. Okay, as opposed to painting with too broad a brush and saying that ninety-five percent of book reviews suck, because that might be too <laughs> might be too harsh. What I'm saying is that, like, I don't like the reviews that say I liked it, I liked it, I liked it, but here are the parts of it that sucked. Right. That's the way most reviews tend to the tend to read to me. Standard structure. Yeah, yes. it's like it's great, it's great, it's less great, it's less great. This part sucked, and then mm -hmm. you're like left feeling like you don't know what to feel, or just I don't know. It, it leaves me feeling sort of. Uh, Wanting. I think there's a lot of truth here to your core point, whether it's about reading reviews or whether it's about reading books. I mean, so much of the selection for me, just personally as a reader of either form, if I pick up a book, it's about it's about who wrote it most of the time and do I want to sort of engage with this person, with this author. If I read an article, most of the time it's about who wrote it and do I want to sort of engage with, with uh, the latest with the latest product of their mind tackling a subject. I mean, there's there are some people who would consider this illegitimate, like a book should stand by itself. Don't worry who wrote it. The book is the object you're dealing with. But I feel like we all, on some level, we all know that it's about who we want to read, not what we want to read. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And I mean, I feel like there's so much content coming at all of us every right. day, 24 seven. Uh, it, get, it can be hard to parse. And so when you find a mind or you find a person uh, who really does it for you and, uh, you know, has a great uh, brain, you, you tend to remember them and go back to the well. Right. I mean, has there been an instance on other people where you've had somebody sitting here in the garage or in the old location in the apartment and you talk to them and talking to them made you 
very quickly devour their work? You felt like you had to go read everything they wrote? Whether or not you completed all of that reading right away, I mean, was there any conversation, early conversation maybe, that just sent you straight into their bibliography? Yeah, I mean, there's been many. So it happens often. Sure. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and then there's also people, um, just because of the busy nature of life, who I feel a really strong connection with, and their work goes on like the to-read list. Mm. Um, you know, there's been so many. Uh, David Shields, uh, I remember feeling that way after I talked to Cheryl Strayed. This was right when Wild was coming out. And I had I'd actually read that and really responded to it. And Yeah, and then, you know, like uh, Chelsea Hodson, Luke B. Goebel... Uh, had great conversations with them and really connected. Megan Dom was another one. Um, I had Rick Barthelme on the show. You know, these are the kinds of people that when you finish talking to them, you feel um, more whole or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely uh, probably read anything they wrote. Do you like writers as a group? I mean, are writers the people you get along with the best? Or do you conceive of writers even as a coherent group with traits in common? Yeah. I mean, I think they're my, I mean, they're my tribe for better or worse, mostly Mm. for better. And, uh, I definitely feel a kinship with people who try to do this. I mean, it's a crazy thing to try to do. (laughs) Now what makes it crazy? Oh, just, uh, you know, to try to make a living at it is definitely crazy. And And when we say writers, do we mean novelists do we mean literary fiction writers what are what are we talking above i feel i mean because i feel a kinship with people who try to write fiction i feel a kinship with people who try to write long-form nonfiction. Mm. Uh, i feel a real kinship with journalists Mm. i think journalism journalism is like a a, a big part of uh like i have a lot of uh, affection for journalists and i think that their their work is incredibly noble and underappreciated or most you know like often underappreciated it's there. There is that. There's also, it's it's strange. I'm of two minds about journalism because I agree with you. And then there's also, I think it's maybe the history of Hollywood movies where journalists went to go work for the studios writing scripts and they wrote a lot of movies ennobling journalists. So I feel like both, A, I hold journalism in high regard and B, I feel like I resent being told to hold journalism in high regard at the same time. Does, does the, Have you had that feeling? Um, yeah, I mean, I... I I guess I would would say that I hold really good journalists in high regard. Yeah, yeah. The profession itself, I mean, it's neither good nor bad to my mind, but good journalists are quite good indeed. Yes. Who do you like journalism-wise? Oh, my God. I read a lot of political journalism. I would Mm. say right now um, that uh, Elizabeth Brunig at uh, The New Republic is like one of my favorite young journalists. She's Mm. She's a brilliant writer, brilliant mind, and she's like no more than like 24 or 25 years old. And uh, she's been writing like her beat is like poverty and inequality and religion, uh, all of which, uh, you know, fascinate me. And her stuff's just really good. And uh, I think the work that she does is uh, the kind of work that I was just talking about. Mm. Now, I should bring up a fact that's obvious, but it's another reason why I wanted to talk to you, because you are, of course, focused on the Los Angeles shall we say, writer community. I mean, this is a show obviously based here in Los Angeles, in your garage. You talk to Los Angeles-based writers for the most part. I mean, is, is it, how much of a theme to you is the city in your show? It comes up quite often, but are you thinking about asking them, asking these writers questions that sort of root the interview geographically in Los Angeles? Because you talk about the Los Angeles writer community, you talk about 
events that go on here. You talk about you talk to people who live here. But how deliberate is that? Or is it just a byproduct of where you are? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's more important now because I've shifted to only doing in-person interviews. Mm-hmm. I used to do phoners, and yeah. I'm trying to stay away from that just because I think the sound quality is a little bit better. The conversation is a little bit more dynamic if you're in person with somebody, and it's just more fun for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that in mind, you tend to book more authors who live around here because they can get here. But the, the truth is, of the almost 400 episodes of the show, a lot of the people aren't from Los Angeles. They're from New York mostly because that's where most writers you know tend to live or they're from the east coast somewhere and they come out here and it's just that natural conversation that i actually need to stop having because it's beaten to death but it's like you know how do you feel about la being from new york and what's it like to live in brooklyn and all that kind of stuff and um you know that particular conversation probably you know could be done away with or at least uh, toned down significantly but i do think that there is increasingly um you know in my mind anyway uh, a lot of uh, emphasis placed on Los Angeles and the fact that I'm here and especially the fact that I'm here as a literary person because there is a really vibrant literary community in Los Angeles, but it's obviously not, you know, it's not Brooklyn. Hmm. And it can be easy to feel when you're out here like you're removed, um, you know, and you're out on the like the frontier or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I guess... Uh, that set of circumstances is interesting. Why did you come out here in the first place? I know you're, you you mention every so often that you were born and raised in the Midwest. What uh, what brought you to Los Angeles? Just besides the sort of fact that Midwesterners coming to Los Angeles has been such a theme in U.S. history for the past hundred years. Uh, graduate school. Graduate school. I went to USC for graduate school and uh, just didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, I'll go to grad. <laughs> just to say, you know, why does anybody go to graduate for school? For writing? Yeah. Hmm. So I went there, wound up here, met my wife here, and like I look up and I've suddenly lived here for over 15 years. (laughs) Is it? Is the city itself an interesting subject to you? It is to me for sure. Yeah, definitely. LA is a really interesting place to live. Um, It's not the easiest place to live. I'm sure there are places where it's simpler and from a cost of living perspective and from a logistical perspective, traffic wise and otherwise. But uh, you know, a lot happens here. And like like I always say on the show, you know, I think what makes Los Angeles to me, um, you know, most uh, unique is the fact that the creative arts are the number one business in town. Mm. I think they're the number one. It's like the, the, the joke is always like it's like the creative arts and weapons. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, There's so, some aerospace there, yeah, I guess, yeah. you know, there, there used to be tire factories back in the day. Right. But, but yeah, I, mean, I know what you mean. That gives it a unique identity in the world. And it's a place that makes me feel at home uh, in, a, in a way that other cities don't. It's, to, for me, a lot of it is even r- ruling out the types of industries that are here, just the general ambition in the air. I feel like maybe this is a quality of cities, no matter where they are, big cities no matter where, but when you feel the ambition that's just ambient in Los Angeles, you can't do without it anymore. Uh, have you felt that? Yeah, it can be toxic. It can be. I, I like it. I got to feel it. What, what What are your bad moments with the ambition in the air here? What I don't you- know. I have. I guess I have. A, I have a, a complicated relationship with ambition mm. and achievement and competition. <laughs> All of it. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's good. You know, and if it brings out the right. best in people, myself included. I. Um, I also worry because I'm not a hugely competitive person. Mm. Um, like what do you know? What do people always say? Like I'm competitive with myself. Like I want to do well, but I'm not a killer. You know, like, and some people, right. 
Like I've had people on my show where they're like tracking the literary awards and <laughs> who's winning what. And like they admit to this. That's and, like, what a killer writer does? Well, that's just what people who probably succeed in any field do. I see. And uh, if you don't have that, it can be a little bit worrying because I feel like it might be inherent. I don't know if it's something you can cultivate or if it's something you're born with. But, mm. uh, you know, it seems like in America especially we celebrate people, you know, like it, just to use um, – you know, a more direct example would be like sport, you know, sports heroes. Right. Like we celebrate the star quarterback or the Michael Jordan, like Michael Jordan, perfect example. This is a guy who's known generally as the greatest basketball player who ever lived, probably the greatest athlete in any sport from a, you know, from a success standpoint that we've had in America in the last, what, 40 years, maybe ever. Mm. Uh, he's, and then if you read about him, <laughs> He's like a psychopath. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near him. Isn't yeah, I mean like I'm like this is it. This is what we, you know, this is what we hold up as like, you know, what we should all be aiming for. That's what I mean. Like right. I I feel like when you peel back those layers, it's like yeah, he's got the trophies, but uh how did he treat people and is he happy and I don't know. It, it, it's, what does he uh, think of himself? Does, does he, in Michael Jordan's mind, is he? Oh, I think he thinks he's fine. <laughs> well, he might he may or may not. I mean, I I actually wonder like if does he act that way because he regards himself as the king of the world or because like, or is it out of sort of a lack of self-respect? Like, am I, am I really taking advantage of humanity as much as I can? Like, is what's, what is, what is a successful person supposed to do? Sometimes I feel like that about people who are really very successful. Like they, they're not sure how to play the role of a successful person. So sometimes it's just like, well, maybe a successful person is just a dick. Maybe I should be that. I mean, you know, and it's like you could use another example. It's like politics, you know, mm -hmm. because so often people sacrifice principle on the altar of victory in politics. And America loves a winner. And it's true. You know, like you have a principled candidate who has a very consistent track record over the entire course of his or her career. And then you have the triangulating candidate who will basically say anything to win. <laughs> and the one that the history books tend to record as the... Um, as the great winner is the one who sacrifices principle on the altar of victory and does whatever it takes to win. Right. That seems to be like an American value. And maybe it's like a, a human value, but I'm not sure it's a good value. And I don't know if I'm clear on that. And that's what I mean when I talk about competitiveness and ambition, and especially in the creative classes. Like, I've had people on this show who are one way, you know, like they track mm -hmm. the awards and they're very competitive and they. They want to be the best and they pay attention to who's winning out there in the marketplace and they want to right. be, you know, and then I've had people on this show like Bud Smith who, um, you know, he has like this great attitude about just making art every day and being mm -hmm. a creative person and doing it because it nourishes your soul. And um, I don't mean to, I hope I'm not diminishing it or making it sound like something um, silly because it's really not, you know, like you, you can listen to my interview with him. Like the guy is, uh, just uh, salt of the earth and has a great attitude about everything. And I think my tendency is to believe that a person like that is maybe more successful, quote unquote, uh, when it comes to art and their approach to art than somebody who, you know, is super hyper competitive. And here's the other thing <laughs> I could ramble on this about well, go uh, on. all day because this is something that I'm really fixated on. When it comes to competition, there's a winner and a loser and the loser tends to feel bad. Hmm. And like, I know in life, I guess sometimes you got to feel bad and there has to be a winner and a loser. I don't like that though. It doesn't make it's me true. happy to know that. <laughs> I mean, what in, what in life, 
Uh, did, you, did you play sports growing up or anything? Yes, in a very mediocre way. So after the sports got done, have you, do you feel like you've lost in life at anything? Sure. What's a, what's, a, what's a loss that's not, when you're not playing a game with rules, just living life, doing your thing, what counts to you as a loss? Oh, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's, that's the game, is, or that's the, the, the problem, is to try to figure out what constitutes winning and losing, what constitutes success and failure. And I think people need to define that for themselves. Uh, I think doing the best that you can, uh, like doing your best to make the most of what you've got and giving that effort, uh, and that's not just in a professional context. I think that's just across the board in life, mm -hmm. trying to be the best dad, trying to be the best husband, trying to be the best writer, trying to be the best podcaster that I can be with whatever I've got. You know, if you give best effort in a sincere way, and um, I think at the end of the day, you can look yourself in the eye and say, uh, you know, I did everything I could. But if you don't give best effort, this is how I feel. If I don't give best effort, if I have a day where I slack or I do an interview that I don't feel like I was at my best in because I didn't prepare enough or mm. I didn't have the right energy or I didn't meditate in the morning or whatever it is that I'll do <laughs> to penalize myself, then I feel shitty. I see. So when you're doing an interview here, whether this is going to be an interview that in your mind you win or you lose, that's determined the moment you hit record. It's determined by how you ran up to it, in a sense, how you prepared, as you say, whether you did the yoga, whether you got in the right frame of mind. Whether, you're, whether this is going to be a good or a bad interview, that's decided as soon as it begins. Uh, sometimes I can save one in the middle. <laughs> oh, yeah? What do you, what's your tact? What's your tact? What is, this, is, this, is, this is an interview in some sense about the craft of the writer interview. What is your sort of Hail Mary tactic if you think the ship's going down in an interview? What, what can you bust out with that might turn things around, for it, example? It, 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 you know, it varies, but I think just the humanizing. Like you can tell right. when you're having an honest conversation with somebody by, I always say it changes your body temperature. Mm -hmm. And it happens when you read something where you strike a note of truth or you read a note of truth and suddenly, you know, you, you, you're, you're a little bit uh, more focused on the book that you're holding in your hands or you're listening to an interview uh, and suddenly, you know, you roll the windows up in the car and turn the volume up or you, uh, you know, you, you stop walking and sit down and listen on your earbuds or whatever it is. But uh, it's those moments in the middle of the conversation where I can sometimes feel like, okay, this thing is turning. And usually it has something to do with the person's uh, personal existence. Mm. And it's, you know, it's not always the same. I will ask questions about a person's spiritual uh, existence. And I use that word loosely. I don't necessarily mean religion. I mean, just like, how do you cope with the inevitability of death? What do you think is going to happen when we die? You go I, straight to the void. Sure. <laughs> why mean, not? Why not? That's, I mean, to me, that's that's really the thing. And uh, at the end of it all, I mean, right? I, like, what else is there? And we're all dealing with it, and we rarely talk about it, it seems like. And uh, it's on my mind all the time. There's a simple question you often ask on other people that I notice every time because I don't usually ask it. It is the one-word interjection just why someone will say something and you'll just simply ask why now is that a natural a natural move for you in conversation or is it does it feel like does it feel like you're sort of making a play there because i i always hesitate to just say why after somebody said something because i feel like i can't pull it off without sounding like i'm accusing them of not having explained themselves enough if that makes any sense tell me about the why and how you use it I mean, it's just natural. And I mm. feel like it's anticipating whatever. I'm always trying to anticipate what I think my listeners are going to be asking in their own minds uh. as they listen. 
And if why is the question, then I'll, I'll spit it out. Right. You're speaking, you're speaking for whatever people are going to be like, oh, you know, they're, the guest is not really exploiting themselves fully. You got to step in there and just force them in a yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, there's like those, they're not really tricks, but I mean, I think when you're talking to somebody asking why and encouraging people to go deeper when you feel like they could or, or should, uh, the other thing too, is just to be quiet. Like Terry Gross is great at this, Right. you know, she'll just, she just let, she just hangs on for a second. And if you hang on for a second, usually the person will expound <laughs> a bit more. It's true. There's a filmmaker I know we both admire, Errol Morris, who has a saying about this. He says, you just let somebody talk for 10 minutes, you'll realize how crazy they really are. He just keeps silent for long stretches in his interviews, as I understand it. And people come out with, as you'll see in his movies, just things you never would expect. I'm always hesitant to do that because I'll feel like, They'll feel like I'm supposed to say something, but if you let the silence drop for a little while, they always pick it up, right? They no, no one ever, no one ever reacts. Well, you don't want to torture badly. people yeah. with it. You don't want to. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to just go completely mute, and, and <laughs> because then people, I think, sometimes will get nervous and just start blabbing because they want right. to fill the void. I mean, silence can be uncomfortable. Um, it's not about discomfort for me. It's more about giving people space to think and compose their thoughts. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, clarify and add to whatever it is that they had been saying previously. So, you know, hopefully judiciously applied, it can be a good thing. And uh, it's not something that I'm using to, like, manipulate the situation in a, in a dark way. It's, it's really just to make the conversation go deeper. Tell me something you've learned or anything you've learned or how, it, how this sort of intellectual landscape looks to you of – why writers write, right? Why these 400 writers you've talked to, are there any patterns, anything that, anything that surprised you about why they're writing in the first place, why they've gone into that vocation? I think it's, a, I think it's like a mental illness. I think, <laughs> uh, I really, I really believe the need to write and, you know, people who are writers, it's like, uh, the Lori Moore line, you know, it's like, try to do something else. And if you still can't, not write, then you're a writer. That's the last, the last resort you're forced to. Yeah. But just like you can go try to be a salesman, try to do anything else, you know, uh, open a bar or do whatever. And you'll, if you're still writing, if you're still getting up at five in the morning or you're still on the bus scribbling in a notebook, then you have whatever it is that makes somebody a writer and there's mm. no turning it off really. And I think everybody who I've spoken with, uh, you know, who publishes books, uh, has that to greater and lesser extents. And I don't know where that comes from. It, you know, it's not necessarily a, a bad, I mean, it's not a bad thing. I, I use mental illness, um, somewhat jokingly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like half joke, half serious. But I think that, uh, what I've learned about why people do it is, you know, what's the Joan Diddy? I mean, not to sound too precious, but Joan Diddy, and we tell ourselves stories in order to live. It's a it's a way to get through life. It's a way to make sense of a crazy world. Mm. Um, it's yeah. I mean that's it. It's medicinal in some way, but it's also uh, a pain. Can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> Do you have a sense that different generations of writers approach writing differently? You talk to writers of a variety of ages, uh, and I want to get an idea of whether you think that generational. The difference between generations is over or understated in terms of in terms of writers, you know, how they're thinking about things, how they're doing their work, all that sort of thing. Uh, how they're doing their work, I don't think changes too much. Mm. I mean, I guess maybe you could use... I mean, I have a friend who wrote her book on Siri, just like talking it into wow. her phone. 
So, I mean, there may be methodologies or something that would change with changing technology. Uh, there may be some something that the internet does to the way in which books are composed or something. But, you know, ultimately it just it comes down to sitting by yourself, staring at a flashing cursor and writing the book. So, Got to put the words there sooner or later. Yeah. And then, um, you know, so the, so the how doesn't change. I don't think the why changes all that much. I think maybe the what changes depending on, uh, you know, generationally speaking, depending on the world that you're born into. Right. You know, I think being born after 1985 and growing up online is a different childhood than I had. Like I had one of the last analog. I was born in 84. I just made it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I had like a, you know, I had like one of the last analog childhoods, you know, yeah. I didn't, I, my life is bifurcated in that way. Um, but I think, it, you know, it's inevitable that people would have a different way of approaching the world and a different way of relating to other people. If, you know, imagine being born in 2000, you're 15 years old now and you, you know, you've always known a social media world. Social media is how you've always interacted with people uh, closest to you. And, you know, that's a different beast. It is. Uh, do you, do you feel to some extent uncomfortable yes. in the social media yes. <laughs> landscape? Why? Um, I just see, I just did the why there. Yeah, no, it's a good, I mean, I feel like I feel like the best kind of relationship is an in-person relationship <laughs> with a very small social media component. And I feel like the worst kind, I don't know, not the worst kind, but I feel like, I don't know, I, I just feel a little bit depressed about the idea of everybody interacting over their computers instead of actually hanging out. I think actually hanging out is way better. It's a theme that's come up in conversations on other people. This like the disappearance of hanging out, right? Yeah. And it may, you know, maybe I'm, it's easy to kind of idealize the past. It's more logistically difficult, especially in a city like Los Angeles where you got to get in your car and you know, there's, there's something to be said for the convenience of texting and the convenience of tweeting and um, letting people know. But I think there's a lot of loneliness at the heart of it. And I think also it gets into like, there's there's something about the curation of lifestyle that you see on like Instagram or Twitter mm -hmm. or Facebook or whatever, where people are showing you vacation photos or like the you know the nice restaurant that they're at, and this is my dessert, and look at how great my life is. And <laughs> there's an element you don't have to follow these people. That's the your choice. They can be your friends, you know. And you're <laughs> like, oh god. And it's like it's like this weird like you know competitive. It's like, it gets back to the competitive thing about how we want to present ourselves online, right? We present some version of ourselves that we want other people to believe, you know, and um, that can make me feel icky because it's like I'm not getting the real thing and I don't know who people are and do people actually know me and I don't know. It just makes me uh, feel uncomfortable a lot of the time. Do you suspect the sort of born in 2000s you mentioned, do you suspect what they put online is the real thing? Some people it is. I mean, but it's inevitable that like the thing about it too is that social media sort of employs or, or is like tailor made for uh, the language of advertising, which mm. I think we all are completely fluent in because sure. it's the world we live in. And so it's just sort of it's like the, the air we breathe. It's the air we breathe. And it's the perfect medium for personal advertisement. And then we know, and we sort of subconsciously know that language going in. And it's amazing to watch people use it to self promote and to self curate. And it's just like seamless. And I think my favorite people on social media to follow are the ones that feel the most 
unvarnished. Mm, yes, I think that's true for a lot of people. Even even the the fifteen year olds, they they like the unvarnished uh, but to the, the extent they can find it. Yeah, I mean, to, and to the extent that like sometimes like unvarnishedness can be a performance that's very varnished. It's right. like it can be hard to peel it apart. What's that saying? Sincerity. You can fake that. You got it made. <laughs> you know. And I just. If you think too hard about this, it really you go you, you go into a spiral. I would think in a perfect world, I would not participate. Right. I have fantasies, as I think a lot of people do, about just the getting rid of all of it and reading books more, and just having my friends and talking to them on the phone, texting with them to make plans, and then like hanging out and getting coffee. If you could shift your life and career back thirty years, would you do it? Uh, I don't think like that. I mean. Again, it's easy to, to kind of idealize the past. I can I can have fantasies about like the mid nineteenth century, you know, and be like, <laughs> oh my god, the transcendentalists and it, everyone was so learned and like you can read like uh, letters from Civil War soldiers, you know, like have you ever seen the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns? Yes, I saw that in school. Yeah, where they're like, you know, they're the narrators reading or they have people reading these letters, and you're like. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> this is just a casual letter from like soldier to wife or whatever. Yes, yes. It seemed like people, you know, it's easy to believe based on that, that people were just way smarter back then and that education was different and they were book learning and they weren't, right. you know, they weren't watching TV and, <laughs> uh, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day long. And um, so, I mean, there's a part of me that, you know, has fantasies about completely removing myself from all of it, unplugging and leading a very analog kind of slow food existence. But uh, I think there's probably a happy medium, and I think that my behavior and my ability to kind of discipline my behavior has a big part of it. You know, because I say all this, and I'm on social media constantly. <laughs> if you, if you, and, and this is, I don't think all that uncommon. You know, bitching about social media yet checking your Twitter feed like a hundred times a day, and I think it's a recognition of the compulsivity of it, and a recognition of the like, a, a recognition of the fact that like it doesn't make me feel good. To go, on the, uh, to go on Facebook or Twitter. It rarely does. Sometimes I'll get a laugh, but usually what it is is like this weird undercurrent of anxiety. Mm. And that's what I feel. And that's what I'm sort of like stoking by going and checking it. And <laughs> I need to, it's, like, it's like feeding it, you know? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And I ask that would you go back 30 years thing because I've heard of various writers of various ages sort of pine for an earlier time when to their minds, it was simpler to be a writer. If you got in the game, you didn't have to... You, there was no social media, no doing any of that. I mean, I think of the movie... Did you see this film by the director of The Color Wheel? It was called uh, Listen Up, Philip. Yes. Came, you saw it? Yeah. Is that the one with... Um, Jason Schwartzman yes. as, the sort of, as the sort of a writer, like an updike or a Roth, but like he's in his 30s, like now. Yeah. It's, it transplants that sensibility of a career into the present social media is never mentioned and in a way it, the movie feels like wishful thinking in its very construction but also it's a satire on some of these younger writers who wish like why can't i have john updike's exact career why can't i have philip roth's career and part of me is like i get it you know you want to have who, who doesn't want to be an icon i guess there's well there's complications to that as well but also i i think like why do you want a career that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. Like, there, there are exciting things now. Why are, we, why are you grasping for sort of what people were limited to doing, what writers were limited to doing in the past? Does that make sense? Like, it feels sad. Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, I think you can be overly obsessed with it. I think it's also healthy to, like, know, um, 
like to know the past, to know history is important. Sure. To have a rootedness in literary history if you're going to be a writer is important. I don't think there's necessarily enough of that. Um, and I'm as, you know, I'm, I'm not completely, uh, you know, innocent in that regard. I could obviously read more. I think everybody feels like that. Mm. Um, so I think it is important to know the past and to have like a certain regard for history. But I think if you, if that's all you're interested in, and you're not a historian, <laughs> uh, and you're trying to be a writer of literary fiction who is speaking to readers today, it's going to be pretty hard to succeed. Do you think the sort of... You, you, you read this occasionally. Someone will say, you know, this world of social media, we're in instant connectivity, uh, very, very rapid travel, all that. It makes it hard to set a story in the present because it's hard to it's hard to tell what we regard as a story in a world where everybody is constantly connected to one another. Do you buy that? Do you buy that you've got, if you want to write a novel in the way we've come to know novels, you've kind of got to go into the past. You've got to, you've got to excise certain parts of today's reality. I don't know. Or you got to reinvent the novel to, I, to uh, conform to, to, uh, to accommodate today's reality. Uh, I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think you have to reinvent. I mean, I think the novel gets reinvented every time somebody writes one uh-huh. to a degree. And I think that if you're writing a novel that's set in uh, the present, then, or, you know, what, whatever approximation of the present that you're trying to lay down, then it's your subjective view of it. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, I think forms can change. People can, people can play with form in a novel. Uh, I think that, yeah, see, this is why I don't talk about like literary theory and stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I don't. I don't think that's why you ask about where they grew up. Rather yeah, than right. Why I don't they... know. I mean, I just think that I think that the the basic nuts and bolts of it, the fundamentals of writing a novel, don't change from right. from era to era. I think it's always the same challenge. It's you know, and it's not that old. I mean, what is it? it goes back to uh, the nineteenth century. Yeah, when was when was uh, Clarissa? That's generally regarded as the first novel. It's o- older than that, I think. It's well, no, then there's the j- there's the Japanese story, which is considered like the first. But I mean, like in terms of like the Tale of Genji, yeah, yeah, the Tale of Genji. So it's like the but in p- popular conception, I'm remembering something. Maybe it was like the Reality Hunger, you know, where mm-hmm. it, I think he's sort of like saying, "Hey, this is a relatively new thing." I could be misremembering, but. Um, the point, I guess, is that anytime you sit down to write any kind of book or tell any kind of long-form story, I think the fundamentals are the same. Hmm. Is there something you want to... Is there a particular thing you would want to know from every writer, no matter who it is? Is there something, one thing, one element of their life or career you're always going to be curious about, no matter who? Uh, I think I'm interested in... I think I'm interested in, I, I, I te- I've been tending to ask people what they think is going to happen when we die. <laughs> right. So back to death we come. I mean, you, in terms of, is there an afterlife? Is just there not an afterlife? I, I like to bring that question up just because I'm like, okay, because like, it just seems like the, the last thing you would ever ask somebody. And I like to ask it, uh, not necessarily first, but just let's bring it out. Let's, let's <laughs> kind of start there and then we'll work from there or something like let's that. Let's find out your position on death and then we can talk. Yes. Yeah. yeah like uh, let, let, let's get real. Uh, I've been wanting to ask people about when they lost their virginity, but I, uh, I haven't gotten to it yet. Maybe I'll start doing that. Do you have to work that in? You think organically 
Or can that just, is that better dropped in suddenly? Well, that's the thing is that it can be, I mean, you start asking people about their sexual histories or whatever. And I, you know, I don't want to come off seeming creepy or something. But, right. Um, I, that's a fascinating. But if they bring it up first, oh, well, then it, you've it, got it, a hit episode on your hands there, my yeah, friend. It's gold. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that kind of stuff. Big stuff in life. What do you think is going to happen when you die? When did you lose your virginity? Did you go through any significant losses as a, you know, as a person, as a child? Mm-hmm. Um, did you get along with your parents? You know, it's like, I want to know who they are as people. I want to connect. And I feel like if I can connect in the room uh, when I'm doing the the interview, then I think the listener will be able to connect. For those authors who you had been reading before you interviewed them, is it is it mostly the case that they have the personalities and the life stories you expect? Or are you more often surprised by them just from the image you had put together from reading their work? Oh, it depends. I mean, mm. uh, if you read somebody, you tend to get a pretty good sense of them, especially if it's a memoir. But even if it's a novel, um, it's weird. You know, people rarely surprise me. That's what, you know, even people you meet on social media or only know via social media, you spend any amount of time reading their Twitter or their Facebook and then you meet them in person. I find that they're very rarely surprising. Mm. People sometimes ask me whether I use notes or not in an interview, and you can see that I don't. Because if I look down even once at notes, the conversation is broken and can never be recovered. That's my fear, anyway. And they ask me if I write questions beforehand. I don't. I just know the first one, sometimes not even that, and go from there. I feel like you might be a bit the same way, or maybe even more so, that it needs to be improvisational for you. If it's not improvisational, it dies. The less I prepare, the better. <laughs> really, just linearly, the less preparation. So you would, ideally, you would have a writer that you haven't heard of at all. Yeah. They sit down here. What do you What do you ask this writer? You've never seen, never heard of, don't know anything. What do you I, ask? I mean, I don't want to diminish my own show, and I certainly don't want to diminish the many fine writers who have been on the show, but I almost, you know, I, th- I tend to feel like you could bring somebody in off the street and sit them down across from me. And I'd have a fine time talking to that person for an hour. Does that extend to the rest of your social life? Like you're at a party, you don't know anybody, you can just talk, you'll have a good yes. time. That's a, did you cultivate that skill or is it an I can or do, inborn skill? This is an inborn skill I have. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, like, look, I'm not like the life of any party. Right. I'm not like the guy with the lampshade on his head. But <laughs> I, I, uh, that guy's great. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have been once or twice, but it's not my natural, you know, it's not my natural role, but. Um, I can talk to strangers. Mm. I can talk to people. And I like to talk to people. I'm fascinated by people. And uh, I like to connect with people. I li- that thrills me. You you're, know, the, when, you're the Forster only connect uh, school of thought, yes? The, the E.M. Forster quote, uh, only connect. I often hope, brought up. And this sounds like you, too. Oh, well, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want superficial exchanges with people mm. in any capacity, whether it's as the host of uh, my podcast or in this uh, conversation or in any conversation I have. Mm. Uh, that makes me feel lonely and it makes me feel like I'm wasting my time. And it's just you know, who wants that? Who wants to spend their life having superficial conversations? And so uh, I'm not I'm not big into small talk. I love to laugh. So. You know, it's not like I, I, it's not like I'm at the party and I'm like, what do you think is going to happen when you die? <laughs> <laughs> that could work. Keep it in the back pocket. No, I'll potential joke. Gambit. I'll joke around, but I yeah. do like to draw people out and I like to be, you know, and, and when I say draw people out, I think a lot of the way, uh, I don't want, I don't want to, um, misrepresent what I'm talking about because 
it's not just some sort of seduction where like I don't show my cards and I somehow get you to show yours, like right. like some sort of snake charmer or something. <laughs> uh, what what tends to be the case is that you lead by being candid first, lead by example. Yeah, well, yeah, you open up and then people open up because people are people want that, mm-hmm. you know, and most people do anyway. And so um, maybe maybe I'm better at taking the plunge first. Um, than than the average person, but, or I'm just like you know it's a compulsion with me. But I like to talk to somebody and then you know immediately kind of set things on a human footing. Do you talk to many strangers outside this show? Um, as many as I can. I mean, I'm I'm busy with my family and um, you know I'm not out. In Los Angeles, you're in your car. You know, you're not in uh, you're not on the subway and you're not. I'm on the subway, my friend. Yeah, you are. But <laughs> on I my mean, bike. yeah, you don't have a car. But I mean, like it, most people are in their cars or you're on your bike. And if you're on your bike, you're not chatting. And right. you know, it just depends. Listening but, to podcasts like other people on the bike. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess the car people do that, too. They do, too. And mm-hmm. so even if you're on the subway, though, like it's not all the time that you have a conversation with people. I think if there's more street level action or if you're out, I don't know just out and about and you're shopping or you're talking to people like yeah i mean you'll you'll mix more but uh for me it's like the the people at trader joe's i talk to them all the time i was gonna ask (laughs) i was literally going to ask in line at trader joe's are you the guy talking well i hopefully not in an annoying way right but i do i i like to mess with people a little bit or joke around (laughs) with people you you enliven your day and theirs i mean when i do I don't necessarily do that, but I try to keep in mind this premise that I can learn something and probably a lot of things from everybody. My mission is to find out what that thing is. Does that resonate with you at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I think it might, for me, it might be just like, let's just make sure that this person's day is a little bit better for having interacted with me. Right. Like, don't try, make it worse. Do yeah, no harm. Don't make it. Do no harm. First, do no harm. <laughs> and, uh. I don't know. I mean, it's not like that calculated. I think if I'm just standing next to somebody, I tend to try to make a joke. Mm. That's mm. my thing. And it, you know, if it's there, other days I'm just like catatonic and I don't have it in me. And then I just like, don't talk to me. <laughs> Do you nevertheless tell your kids not to talk to strangers? I mean, this is the second kid is still quite young, but you have an older child as well. No, I don't say that. No, I, no. I'm glad. I'm glad that day is. Is that day over in parenting? The it's don't talk little, to strangers. It's a little paranoid. I mean, you know, and you don't want to instill like some sort of crazy irrational fear in a kid. I mean, you right. want you want them to have common sense, and uh, we'll get there. But like, don't talk to strangers seems a little bit too broad. You didn't get that growing up, did you? The don't talk to strangers. Sure, and it was like don't get in the car. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I remember like there was the whole Adam Walsh thing for people of my generation, right. you know? like Of course, you were right in that window. Right in that window. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, you yeah. got pulled from a shopping cart or whatever it was. And, um, you know, it's really scary. I remember being scared by it when I was a kid. And so that is something I would like to avoid uh, with my own children. Uh, you know, A, exposure to that sort of stuff as much as possible. Because, and this is another thing that that uh, I guess could tie back into what we were talking about with regard to social media, but just media in general, is that one of the things or one of the ideas that I've been sort of plagued by in recent times is this notion that uh, media can be just as toxic as like drugs or anything, you know, mm. like anything we ingest. You know, we often think of toxins in terms of like what we put into our bodies. Trans fats, man. Yeah. You keep those out of your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Poisoning like, uh, yourself. fructose corn syrup. But uh as a kid, I remember sort of bristling at the adults in my life who were telling me that I shouldn't watch violent movies or right. I shouldn't listen to NWA or any of the, you know, any of this stuff. Like, it's like, 
Yeah, we used to make fun of the parents who were like kumbaya and like didn't have the television <laughs> and only let their kids listen to X, Y, and Z. A lot of earth tones in those homes. Yeah, for and, sure. And and I don't think I'm going to go that far, but I think I've actually come around, or at least I'm toying with the idea of coming around to like these people have a point, and I think what we ingest from a media standpoint uh, can be every bit as toxic as as. Uh, you know, the more traditional toxins. Mm. And if you spend all day reading uh, political news or news about <laughs> war in Syria or you're, you know, reading, uh, you're looking at your Instagram of all these people on vacation while you're at home, like, you're going to feel like shit. Do you think Americans realize how gripped by fear and anxiety they are? No. Yeah, they don't, do they? No, I mean, not, not all of all. them, but I think that... um the more the better. I mean, I think part of like, you know, just awareness of the fact like, oh my God, I feel anxious. You know, this is making me feel anxious or that's what meditation is for me. Um, I, I you know, I feel like I'm really bad at it, mm. but I sit there uh, every day, most days, twice a day. And I'm just like, oh my God, like I'm really anxious or pissed off or I'm having mm. like an argument with somebody that's completely, you know, uh, fictitious. It's not, it's not real, but I'm like, I'm debating like my mom or something about, in your head, in my head. And like, oh. you catch yourself doing that and you go to your, you go to yourself, you go, Oh, like this is my normal mode when I'm unconscious, this is happening all the time. Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't like slip into some sort of state of bliss, I at least became aware of this static that's going on. I became aware of how I feel, uh, and that to me is valuable. That's mindfulness, I guess, what they talk about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, a, you know, I, I don't want to uh, sound preachy or ridiculous, but uh, it's good for me. We're just past Halloween and you're a parent. I've got to ask you if this is still going on. Now, I was born in 84, as I said. I'm 31 years old today, as a matter of fact. Today's uh, your birthday. Yeah, today's my birthday. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. Um, but growing up in the 1990s, in my case, when Halloween came around, there was always this wave of fear that. Definitely strangers are putting razor blades into your candy or oh, razor God. blades into apples. And it's patently or they're lacing ridiculous. <laughs> There's that too. But I mean, I always heard of the razor blade in the candy. Like, how are you going to get a razor blade in a Snickers bar? And it, there's no documented instance of that even happening ever. But still, the parental fear was so strong. Parents were ready to believe that strangers want to harm my children for no reason. Yeah. And so there, I remember there were stations you could go at, like school gyms, to have firemen scan your candy so there to make sure there were no razor blades in it, that there's no recorded incident of ever happening. Like That felt to me even then like we've reached a peak of something bad here. Do you feel like, I mean, you're a parent now, you know, there's still still worries about razor blades and Halloween candy. Is America still that sort of... Not for me. <laughs> I mean, Sick. I, I'm worried about plenty when it comes to my kids. I mean, how can you not yeah. be as a parent? But, it, you know, I think that those kinds of urban legends... And this is the thing, too. I'm not a fan of singular instances of really bad shit being used to change behavior in mass. Yes. That bothers me. The con which is constantly happening. No, it's like, it's like my, my parents were getting ready to go on a trip. Uh, yeah. you know, like they're retired. They're going to go over to Italy. And my mom was like, oh, I'm worried about, you know, there's just all this terrorism in the world. And I'm like, no. Like, mm -hmm. no you're going, first of all, you're going to Italy. <laughs> Second of all, like, if you start to think like that, I mean, I, if you start to think like that, then the terrorists win. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I kind of do believe that. Like, then they've got a grip on you, and they've got, you, you know, you've got That's fear. That's what they wanted. They want fear. They want right. you to be afraid. And, like, I uh, refuse to, like, I get, that's where I start to get, like, a little bit uh, 
I become kind of a chest thumper. Like I refuse to, to participate in that. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, that may be like the more macro version of it. I think the, you know, the, the, uh, the micro version would be like razor blades and candy or people, yes. you know, wasting their, you know, their expensive drugs on lacing your pot, which seems crazy. <laughs> like when, who, who's, yeah. Who's lacing? Who's and why? Yeah. Why would they do it? Drug, drug dealers tend not to just give away their, uh, their drugs. <gasps> in my experience. Now, do you think that reading literature is an effective treatment for this fear or anxiety is literature in and of itself curative connecting it through literature what, yeah. what when is it when is this when does it work the best for you uh well i mean i think it's when you're you're reading something that you really connect with uh mm-hmm. where you're getting into a person's interior that resonates with your interior what and, kinds of things are that for you where you read them and books or authors or whatever forms that you read you think i'm really really locked in with this or they're locked in with me well it's a mystical it's i mean like again not to sound not to sound silly but uh for me, it's hard to find a book that I lock in with. Yeah. Like I put down a lot of books because it's just not the right book. And I'm a big believer in reading only the things that really resonate. I don't like to, you know, gut my way through a book just because everybody else read it and I think I should. Right. Everybody else went through Life of Pi. I'll, I'll trudge yeah, through it as well. If it's not for you, it's not for you. <laughs> but if you find the books that are for you, that's the best joy because mm-hmm. you just tear through them and you think about them when you're not with them. And it's like this obsession and like, it just feels like the food that you desperately need now. Hmm. And to find a book like that is a great experience because it feels like it feels like magic. It's like, oh, this is just what I needed at this time in my life for whatever reason. Hmm. And I think it varies from time to time. Um, I wish I had a better a batting average uh, in terms of finding those books. I think some of it is a function of time hmm. and being able to go to the bookstore and browse and try things and find. And, you know, again, with young kids, it's not as simple as it used to be. Um, but when I do find those books, uh, yeah, it's super medicinal. Is there anything you hope your kids get into reading? Any type of avenues literarily you hope to see them going down? Yeah, paper books. Paper was always oh, so the physical medium is yeah, important too. It's it, increasingly like I've I've gone back and forth on this, and I think like I have a Kindle app, and I read books on you know eBooks sometimes. So I'm not like a complete, um, you know, I'm not completely orthodox or whatever, but. I really think slow food is important when it comes mm. to literature. And I think having the physical object and not having access to the internet and not looking at a screen is vital. What does the screen, what's wrong with the screen? For me, a lot of times it's, it has access to the internet. Oh yeah. And so sure. there's the risk of lateral. This movement. wasn't a problem in 1982 when it was just a green screen with characters on it. Nothing, well, nothing was there to do. You can't concentrate. And like, you know, to go back to like uh, meditation, you know, which I think is in addition to being more in touch with my own suffering or just being aware of how crazy I am. Um, it also hopefully is helping me rebuild some of the wiring that's been broken down mm. by constant screen time and multimedia uh, which completely destroys your ability to concentrate, which is precisely what's required to read a book. And so many of us, I mean, I hear people say all the time, it's harder and harder for me to get to read, to sit down, to be able to sit still. And uh, you talk about mindfulness, like the opposite of mindfulness is forgetfulness. Mm. So you might be aware of where you are and the fact that you're alive right now and that you're breathing. And then it happened, you know, all of a sudden, like you're lost in your thoughts and you're whisked away on this weird river of uh, nonsense <laughs> and you find yourself imagining an argument with your mom or whatever. So you slip into forgetfulness and then you got to come back in. And I think another, ex- you know, an extension of forgetfulness is loss of concentration. Mm. You know, you have to build up 
concentration in order to be a good reader. And I think that being a good reader builds up concentration. They're, they're mutually reinforcing. You think your kids' generation is going to be better at this than, than we are? No, I think they're going to be worse. Worse. So they're not, they're not because my theory, not that I actually have, but the theory I'll throw out here uh, is that maybe they're native to all this stuff. It won't be such a novelty to them and thus not quite as, you know, in the early days of television, people would sit for hours at dumber things that are on TV today, if you know what I mean. Maybe yeah. they'll just, it'll be like, again, the air they breathe. They won't be so intent on checking Twitter because Twitter will be long gone and that that was already there. It's taken for granted. Uh, that'll that'll be there when I come back. You know what I mean? I have a hard time believing. Like, listen, I don't want to sound like one of these old people who's like, oh, the world is fucked and you know, like <laughs> nothing's going to, you know, I don't want to be like that. I'm an optimist um, at heart. And I, I think you have to be, especially if you're a parent, like just mm. being a parent is inherently optimistic. <laughs> right. Um, and so I have hope for things to improve and for the world to be a better place in the future. And that's certainly what I'm going to be, uh, you know, working on, you know, to try to, uh, you know, hopefully the kid, you know, the kids that I raise will be a part of helping to build that in whatever way. Um, but I look to the future and I look at where things are technologically today and I look at the market forces at work and it just seems very hard for me to believe that my children's generation is not going to be more in, you know, inundated with media. And mm. the big thing that scares me is driverless cars because I feel like that's a, that, that this is this is the epiphany that I think maybe some people had a long time ago but is really taking hold among businesses and uh capitalists today it's like man if we can get people to stop driving we can put screens in that car and just advertise to oh, them you're afraid of the screens all day long it's just yeah. I mean, think about it you're, like in cabs your screens are there you're a captive audience right you're i mean think about how many hours of advertising could be sold if people didn't have to actively drive their cars to work right and you know people would be online you know people would be watching netflix you know people would be tweeting or whatever like they will just be in their car i'm just picturing this world where they're in their cars and there's just like a flat screen on every you know wall of the car and on the ceiling and like that's probably excessive but <laughs> maybe not too well i mean you can see a little bit in in korea where i'm moving next week uh on the subway people everyone's got their phone out they're doing something on those phones Constantly. be it games be it watching tv be it sometimes reading books because, i don't know because but same you know deal. why because you know why that you know, people dive into their phones because they don't want to be alone with themselves. Ah. They don't want to touch their own suffering. They don't want to be in touch with it. They don't want to to uh, hear their own thoughts, and they want that dopamine shot of like a Twitter like or you know a, a text message from a friend or whatever. But to sit still and to be quiet is deeply uncomfortable for most people. So do you drive around no nothing on in the car? Yes, just the air. I try. I'm not, I'm not, wind. I don't bat a thousand, but like increasingly, yeah. Where's your mind go in those, in those drives? I'm trying to stay. I mean, I, when I, when I do it that way, I'm trying to just be like, okay, I'm driving and I'm looking around and I'm alive and I'm driving my car. Hmm. Does this sound ridiculous? No, it makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> because I don't drive a lot, but I know what you mean. But it's like, because you get in the car and it's like, I'm constantly resisting the urge and often failing to check my phone while driving, which is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and by the way, I don't do that when I have my kids in the car. Uh, unless I'm completely stopped at a red light. <laughs> yeah, your foot's on the brake. You're on probably the, fine. Yeah, I mean, on the brake, red light. But I mean, it's 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 an annoying compulsion. Oh, you know, w like what the fuck has happened in my life in the 10 minutes it takes me to drive to the grocery store 
that I've got to be checking my phone three times en route. It's ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous, but it's like an addiction. You feel like you're expected to on some level, too. Like, somebody will think I need to, I'll see this soon if they sent me a message, so I got to look. It's the forgetfulness. It's like the slipping into, and it's also like that discomfort. Like, it's this weird, like, to me, it sort of manifests like a weird kind of uh, subterranean knot in my solar plexus. Mm. You know, it's that it's that discomfort. It's that block of suffering or whatever it is that exists in all of us. And uh, you start to feel it and you go, oh, going to dive into my phone. Let's forget about this. Let's run away from this. Let's not pay attention. Uh, and I think that the sad irony of that is that it doesn't actually alleviate suffering. In the long run, it exacerbates it. I think you have to go into it in order to get out of it. What's something, what's, what's some type of suffering that doing the conversations on other people has alleviated or something you've come to understand better about life from all these conversations or something that's changed about you after these 400 or so interviews? What's a, what has the experience helped with, do you think? It's hugely nourishing. Like mm -hmm. you have a good conversation with somebody and you really connect. And that could be in the context of the podcast or it could be just anywhere in life. Mm -hmm. It always makes you feel good to connect with another person. Uh, I think, you know, just the obvious one is that it makes you feel less alone. You know, like not only in terms of actually being in a room with somebody and sitting down and having an IRL conversation, but also just, oh, I'm not the only one who struggles with this. Oh, I'm not the only one who's been through loss. Oh, I'm not the only one who doesn't know what happens when we die mm -hmm. and is sort of freaked out by that or whatever it is, you know. And so that's one thing, uh, you know, that you learn. I think you also... Um, I've gotten a fairly clear picture of the kinds of writers and artists who tend to be happiest in their lives. What's something about them? Uh, well, as far insofar as writers go, uh, I boil it down to three things. It's like read a lot, write like with discipline pretty much every day, and don't do it for money. Mm. Those are the rules that I've sort of given to myself. Like, you know, you have to read a lot. Most of us don't. I need to read more. But that's the part, that's the metabolism. That's how it works. You take in the text, you put out your own text, Precisely. but without the input, there is no output. Precisely. And it's like, mm. it's like the most elemental thing. And yet we forget. And it's like, God, I don't have any inspiration. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to write about. And it's like, well, what have you read lately? Right. It's, it's directly proportional. Shrug. I read Twitter is what I read. Exactly. And so like maybe, maybe that's enough for some people to like generate, but they must be following some amazing tweeters. <laughs> they must certainly be, you know, do you think finally this question comes to mind? That that's why podcasts where people talk, whether it's your show, whether it's the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, or the hundreds of thousands of far less formal shows, people just gab in. Do you think why that that's why they're popular is we sort of, these are the conversations we miss actually participating in, so at least we can get them in our earbuds? Yeah. No, and it's I think it functions, I just said this on a monologue recently, that I mm. think it functions in a way that's not dissimilar from good literature in mm. terms of giving you access to another person's consciousness. Like their inner, their inner world, their inner thoughts. Uh, I think maybe literature can go deeper just because of form. You know, you can, you can really dive deep in a book in a way that maybe in an, in an hour long podcast or a half an hour long podcast, you can't, but there are many interviews that I've conducted that I feel like go very, go real deep and have moments of real profundity. And mm -hmm. there are podcasts that I listen to where the, that's the experience and it, you have that feeling of uh, like it changes your temperature. You feel warm inside. It feels nourishing. And I think the same thing happens when you read a good book. And it's, uh, it's medicine. Well, listeners, you can get your temperature changed. You can connect to the consciousness, <laughs> consciousnesses of a variety of other people. I'm very, and by the way, I should say I'm very caffeinated. I hope I don't sound too, uh, I don't know. 
confident in my own opinions. No, you're good, man. I, I I agree with what you're saying, and that's why that's why I'm telling the listeners what to do. They they gotta they gotta connect to all these other people on other people, which is the podcast by my guest today, Brad Listy. He is both a podcaster and a writer, and the founder of the literary culture site, uh, The Nervous Breakdown. You can keep your finger on the pulse of literary culture if you keep up with that site, but also by listening to other people. Also, take a read. Take a read of, take a read on, take a read of his novel, Attention Deficit Disorder. That's his first one. He's working on a second one whose progress you can keep up with by listening to the monologues <laughs> on other people. How's that going, by the way? Uh, well, it's going well this week. This week. It's a very slow process. Like I was, yeah, it's a very slow birth to use that analogy, but I'm sticking with it. A vivid analogy for you, given recent yes. uh, second child events. All too vivid. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much. Thank you so much. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. Keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.